Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Cup Duet Reviews. I am your host, Ryan Brockovich, literary manager for Cup of Hemlock Theater. And once again, I am joined by Ashley Murphy, who is a good friend of the Cup and always game to do one of these fun duet reviews. Ashley, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm just dandy, you know, living in the reality of Ontario at the moment where the mm -hmm. highlight of my day and probably week was going to Farm Boy. But, you know, yeah. um, also watching the Lorax, of course. Yeah, so. the two highlights. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, I have to ask, what's in your cup? What's in my cup? I mean, I'm sorry, do you mean what's in my limited edition Taylor Swift Tumblr? Oh, um, <laughs> which is ironically my... Lorax themed in a way from a certain point of view. <laughs> it's reusable. Um, it's a farm boy pomegranate soda. Um, nice. As much as I wish it was straight gin, again, given the aforementioned Ontario situation, um, mm -hmm. gone for a nice springy pomegranate soda. Sounds and how great. about you? Ryan, I just I just have orange Pico tea in my the cup cup so Amazing. the classic <laughs> cheers so as I briefly hinted we are talking about Dr. Seuss's The Lorax as it was recently restaged live by the old Vic in their in-camera series it was a limited run from April 14th to 17th and I believe it was supposed to coincide with Earth Day and give an opportunity to be presented for schools mm -hmm. So yeah, a lot we could talk about. So there's a lot of, it, it kind of occurred to me that, so this production, the adaptation was written by, I, I've always said David Grieg, but I, I think they said David Gregg at the beginning. Is I don't know if you know the proper pronunciation of his name. I, I've always defaulted to like Greg. So Greg. I, I'm assuming if they're it's saying Scottish, Greg, yeah. I guess it's Greg, but. Yeah, David uh, Gregg, sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, so David Gregg wrote this adaptation, which I think is kind of amazing. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Charlie Fink of Noah and the Whale fame wrote all the music uh, and there's great songs, there's puppetry. And it, it, well, the thing that occurred to me is that this is almost the perfect synthesis of the two other duet reviews we've done so far because it's, uh, you know, prominent British playwright who came into fame in the 90s with pretty like gritty work like Sarah Kane. As, he was a roommate, like straight yeah, up he was Yeah, roommate. they were like, pals. <laughs> <laughs> and it is also an adaptation of a children's work that has been the subject of an animated film and kind of, yeah, and a musical adaptation of that no less, just like yeah. Ratatousical. So interesting kind of, you know, this is the culmination point of the two we've done so far. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So we, I want to just kind of begin. What did you think of it? Well, um, I when you first sent this to me, Brian, um, I definitely thought, huh, this is like an in interesting cultural moment to be doing anything to do with Dr. Seuss. Um, <laughs> I was I, thinking I, that too. <laughs> yeah, and like I spoke about this with a friend too, and she's like, oh my god, they're doing Dr. Seuss now, like this month. That's that's a lot. Um, you know. It's not like overtly racist, but at the same time, it's like, oh, this, you know, is unfortunate. And I'm sure that they, you know, the old Vic may have experienced some reduced ticket sales um, across the board. So sorry, old Vic, if you're watching this. Um, well, I don't know. I think people have really overblown the whole Dr. Seuss situation because it's, what was it, five or six individual books that have very yeah. specifically racist imagery that are... They still exist. Nobody's burning them. They're just going out of print and not being sold anymore. Yeah. And, like, yeah. So, 
And the Lorax is not one of them. Cat in the Hat isn't one of them. Green Eggs and Ham and the Grinch. Like, all the good ones aren't on that list. Nobody no, really cares about, uh, like, if I ran the zoo, aside from the fact that I think that might have been one of the first ones, and there's <laughs> cultural significance there. But, yeah, that the unfortunate ones aren't the ones that have stood the test of time anyway. <laughs> so... <laughs> For sure. And, like, when you're then, again, watching this adaptation of the Lorax as well, which is, like, so multicultural and you've got, like, this really diverse cast, which is awesome. Like, I don't know. I, I just thought that that spoke to the kind of current moment in kind of a interesting and fun way. And at the same time as well, the only thing I was a little, like, eh about um when it first started there's an announcement being like thanks for paying to see this so that we can show it to other people for free after Earth Day. i was like oh all right <laughs> yeah no problem old Vic. Like, yeah yeah no good point <laughs> but if that's the only thing that you thought was i'm guessing you thought the rest was pretty positive <laughs> i did i did um on the whole i would have said it was a little too long is perhaps you know my attention span in the time of COVID digital theater has really withered away. And when we got to an act break for this, I was like, oh, okay, that's yeah. old. I haven't done that in a while. I guess I go make a snack. And, uh. Yeah, like I thought the length, it was interesting because kids shows are usually about an hour long, rarely over an hour and a half. Right. Kids movies certainly are rarely over an hour and a half. Considering yeah. this is like a, what, 40 page picture book that this is based on. Like yeah. I really wasn't expecting it to be long and I, I have no problem with long theater. My yeah. attention span is fine. Um, <laughs> Why don't you? <laughs> no, I, I didn't mean that as a slight against yours. I'm just like, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I don't have a problem with that. But I was, I, I too was surprised at how long it was. But to me, we're going to do some comparison to the 2012 film, Don't You Worry. But what I think is always funny about those Dr. Seuss film adaptations is how much fluff they have to add. Oh, for and sure. This, to me, was longer, much longer than the book, longer yeah. than the 2012 film, and to me didn't feel very fluffy. So, like, yeah, we, we, we can discuss that because they certainly did add things, but the things they added to me felt kind of right it wasn't like oh, yeah. the weird sort of Zac Efron Taylor Swift romantic subplot that was very necessary it's not like uh, the whole kind of yeah. O'Hare's Air Emporium which is dumb for reasons we'll talk about later um, yeah. but yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah. everything seemed more or less focused the songs propelled the story in like a way that didn't feel like irrelevant and yeah like I I didn't mind that it was long even though I was surprised that it was yeah, no, same, same. Um, and I found myself as well thinking quite a bit of, have you seen the Matilda musical adaptation or no? I, I've listened to some of the soundtrack. I haven't actually seen it, no. Okay. Like, I definitely found it in a very similar essence to that, like in terms of what they added in order to make it a full length thing, in addition to just kind of the spirit of it as well, because you've got that very cheeky British pun writing in there where like some of the lines in in the Lorax I wound up writing down because I was like nowhere else are you going to make conundrum rhyme with underum fantastic <laughs> yeah. um and yeah I, like so many of those kind of slights of writing I I really you know if I were an adult with my young child at this I would appreciate that yeah um, and again the fact that it's coming from Sarah Kane's roommate like <laughs> would she have liked it honestly I think so like yeah. It seems like the kind of thing she would probably enjoy. It's very like it's surprisingly fierce. Like it's oh yeah, you you can't call this toothless. Like I think a lot of that is a common critique of the 2012 film and its right. sort of uh, political, environmental, anti-capitalist rhetoric. Um, right. But yeah, <laughs> so uh, yeah, 
do you want to like just to sort of keep some semblance of structure here do you have a <laughs> cast shout out anyone like i know it was sort of tough because it was a big ensemble that played many roles but yeah um i'm just looking through my notes <laughs> i like okay ryan every time we do one of these i always feel so stupid because every time i always feel like it's a very ensemble thing that we watch I'm like it's these the three have been <laughs> these three that we have for sure so like if there's any diehard the cup fans watching and you've got like a drinking game going for how many times i'm like oh the ensemble it's an ensemble piece of theater i mean get get your cup out because surprise um join in the drinking <laughs> yeah um no because straight up like it is an ensemble working really really well together bouncing off each other um and in terms of the way that the video was incorporated into this as well like i felt like they made the most of a zoom format um, without necessarily sacrificing any of what made it theater. And I think that the ensemble worked really well to accommodate that as well. Like even those sort of mirror effects when you have one person on either side of the screen being different people, I, I thought was really cool. Yeah, like I, I was really impressed. If I didn't know that this was being performed live, I would have assumed they pre-recorded it and then edited all that together in post because it was almost right. just too clean or too polished like in the yeah. uh, digital effects there so that yeah it was really well done like cast shout out goes to the videography and editing like i guess <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, among other things and the ensemble <laughs> right and how about you ryan do you have a, a cast shout out so it's unfortunate because yeah because of all the ensembleness there are real characters that i really like liked and connected with but i just kind of like looking at the headshots there that says just like ensemble storyteller. I'm not precisely sure who it was. Yeah. But one that I did want to shout out is uh, the the performer who played Small Ed in particular. Okay, yeah. That was just such a fun role, kind of like, uh, again, that, that doesn't exist in the book. That doesn't even exist in the movie. Like, uh, <laughs> um, but, but yeah, she kind of just kept popping up at like fun times. I sort of laughed like very frequently at her just oh, yeah. sort of emergence as this like funny sort of first bed usurper character who then becomes the Wunzler's right hand associate essentially. Uh, but yeah, yeah. like uh, I, I think sort of a bigger shout out that, you know, good transition into talking about the puppetry is the three great performers who together brought the Lorax to life. Yeah, of course. Because yeah, Lorax is obviously the heart of the show and I thought they did a great job animating this puppet. <laughs> For sure. I mean, uh, David Ricardo Pierce, who was the voice as well as one of the puppeteers. Um, I always really appreciate like that sort of voice acting on stage. Um, it, like it's something that is so far beyond what I am capable of doing. And I, he just really evoked the character really well. Like there's a really technical sort of voice acting that's happen happening there. And I'm like, oh, good. It's, you know, in watching a lot of Canadian digital theater recently I won't like name drop here but I watched something the other day that was not great I'm like oh this is that you know that craft on stage for something that you know we might see as oh the Lorax it's for children no that's the the diction and the actual treatment towards the text I found really impressive yeah it, and like I love the whole like I know this is pretty common in like contemporary puppetry and certainly in British theater but I love that they, they don't hide the seams that it's like, it's very, the puppet looks very handmade in like a fun way. I like that you can see all three puppeteers at any given time that, uh, yeah, Dave Ricardo Pierce, like you said, he's doing the voice, but he's not like, he's not the one hiding behind. He's like right there, right next to him. And 
you see right. his lips moving. There's no kind of artifice there, but yet the way they're just animating his puppet really, it feels like the Lorax is talking. It, oh, for sure. And like, like at no point is this performance trying to be Warhorse as well. I know. I was which... thinking that. I'm like, it's a lot of the stylistic stuff is similar, but it's very clearly a different like yeah. beast altogether. No pun intended. <laughs> For sure. And I think something that's kind of important to note as well, like this isn't the full version of this version of the Lorax, right? Like this is purposefully a very scaled down version of what they had done a few years ago. Um, And I kind of did find myself wondering what that scaled up version looked like while watching this. I'm like, oh, you've got this very cool, um, well-developed Lorax puppet. Where is the rest of that puppetry? Like how else was that muscle flexed in other portions of this production when they had either more space, more budget, less COVID, whatever? Mm Um, but yeah. Yeah, and we see other elements of the puppetry, like the, at least in the framing device sequence, the one slur starts off as a puppet, which I thought was really, like, cool, like, I like the big shiny eyes and the gloves. Uh, I I did kind of regret that he came down and became human again at the end. I kind of thought, like, let the present-day one slur just be this, like, kind of puppet shut-in beast, but I don't know, I guess there's thematic significance to him joining the boy in the present, or the child, it's not even specifically a boy here, which I liked. (laughs) Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, uh, all the animals I thought could have might might have been interesting if they were more puppets, but they were all just kind of people in costumes, which also kind of worked in a fun way. Yeah, so like yes, but I'll kind of say except for the swan um, mm-hmm. portion. Yeah. There's like a little swan interlude, which I was blown away. <laughs> Again, it's just a you know a case of caliber and quality that kind of came out of nowhere. Because when this started, I. I I didn't really realize it was a musical. I think in my head it was probably more like a British panto style of thing. Yeah. Um, and then they started singing. I'm like, oh, that, wait, they're great. Okay, cool. And then we get this swan sequence where there's this gorgeous sort of like lyrical ballet sort of movement sequence yeah. happening. Like, oh, okay. And it's the swan dying. It's like very Tchaikovsky in a way. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like it's, it, and it's interesting because it is, it's not just a swan. It's a very Seussian, swami swan, like a made up kind of fictional, you know, ridiculous creature that is yeah, doing this beautiful dance to highlight that the pollution from the feet need factory is killing it. Like right. it is the perfect kind of blend of silly but <laughs> lovely <laughs> and that kind of just yeah it works really well and sort of takes you off guard in that way for sure and like as someone who used to like hands-on make theater as well I always appreciate a good use of a fog machine <laughs> and I like I don't know how much of their budget was used on that fog machine but money well spent like absolutely yes. every time like you could kind of see them turning it up a little I'm like absolutely yeah this is a play about pollution you kind of need to show that <laughs> in some way yeah like, is it a little precious little heavy-handed absolutely did I care no cool it's, like, it's a kid's show about a little puppet who speaks for the trees I don't think heavy-handed <laughs> we are past the point of that mm-hmm. speaking of heavy-handed things <laughs> do you want to talk about the messages <laughs> and environmentalism <laughs> why don't I let you start with that one Ryan well I have like a weird kind of hot take about this because which okay we'll be we'll build to that um something that I really liked about this and this I think came with the fact that like what I thought about how it didn't feel like fluff mm-hmm. and I think this is like the value of hiring someone like David Gregg to do this as opposed to just like, you know, 
whoever Illumination right. Animation Studios hired, uh, <laughs> <laughs> is that this kind of, if you, like, if you read the book, and I actually did reread the book last night in preparation for this, <laughs> um, the Lorax is kind of just a complainer. <laughs> he, uh, he, he shows up when the first tree is cut. He tells the Onesler, don't do that. The Onesler's like, ah, but I'm making money, so silly you. Uh, and then he kind of just comes back to say, you've destroyed the Barbaloot's habitat, and now they have to leave. You've destroyed the Swan's habitat, and now she has to leave. You've destroyed the fish habitat, now they have to leave. Last tree's cut, okay, peace, bye. And like, that's kind of all he does. He just tells the, the Onesler that you did a bad thing, meh, meh, meh. Yeah. I like that this Lorax kind of takes a more active role in combating the actual like ecological destruction that the Onesler is uh, perpetrating here. It, there's like an interesting arc towards like they first meet and kind of, I think it, it's interesting because this is coming in the aftermath, like the original production of this comes in the aftermath of the film, right. which kind of came up with a lot of stuff for how are we going to pad the runtime of this thing. And a big part of that was the buddy comedy between the Onesler and the Lorax. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I liked that instead of just like, oh, they're kind of friends, but also the Onesler wants to kill him, which is a weird subplot in the movie, uh, <laughs> when they actually do try to murder him in the lake or... <laughs> Uh, it's a it's a weird movie. I, I kind of have a soft spot for it because I think there's like a lot of like bizarrely fun over the top stuff in it. But like, yeah. so like I am ribbing it in jest and in good fun. But like, I think this is the better version of the fleshed out feature length Lorax because yeah. So this sort of starts with uh, yeah. Uh, hey hey, Onceler, you don't need to cut down the trees and build a factory and make stupid needs because. You know, this oasis has everything you need. And in fact, I'll carve out a little corner that can be just for you to live in a sort of prelapsarian natural paradise and just live off of fruit and not have to worry about the pressures of capitalism. Uh, and then he sells the first need and he's like, well, so much for that. I'll just keep doing, I'll cutting. And then we, we get to this like very interesting contract scene which, I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, well, this is kind of my favorite thing because so they 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 decide that oh well I got to keep making my needs because there's demand for it and you know I don't want to I'm not I don't want to destroy everything of course so why don't we make a contract that I will only chop down what is in Onesler Nook that little area that you designated for me and then he you know when he realizes that demand has spiked exponentially he's like well we don't possibly have enough trees in Onesler Nook and he brings in the three lawyers who McCann, McGee, and Ben Goo who sing this like beautiful like soulful Supremes-esque number about yeah. fudging the contract and finding legal loopholes that well a Nook is very hard to define and anything could be the Nook and we could redraw these barriers and it occurred to me, is this an allegory for indigenous sovereignty? <laughs> like, we have broken treaties, stolen land, ecological devastation. I'm like, hmm. <laughs> Kevin Loring, are you watching program this next year? <laughs> that, I, that I would, oh my God, that would be amazing. <laughs> like, yeah. um, oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah, so that was just kind of the, like, amazing sort of thought I had. Like, this is kind of, 
I don't know if that greeting is on purpose, but it's certainly open to that. And like, yeah. I'm 100%. And like, there's also kind of like the gerrymandering approach <laughs> that you can take. And then also like the Jeff Bezos parallel, impossible yep. to ignore. Um, <laughs> my little quip with the the lawyer and the contract situation, like ragging on depth of character in the Lorax, I know is not an argument that's going to go very far, but I, the kind of shades of, of guilt and second guessing that we just start to see in the Wanzler, I didn't feel were taken as far as they could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of found myself wishing, cause it's like, oh, you've taken so much time to get in my head that there is a contract and that is in some way binding. Um, and I, even with the, oh, loopholes, whatever, let's teach children how contracts work. Like, I felt like it was a little abrupt in terms of that change of heart. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't quite sure that that was an earned change of heart. Yeah, I, I, I think that, that is a very, like, well-taken critique. Um, because, yeah, <laughs> like, there's something sort of interesting in the contract scene because there's the sort of like schism that exists between the what can we get away with within the letter of the law and the spirit of I made a promise to my kind of friend and I don't necessarily want to see the Barbaloots die. Um, <laughs> like, and like, I recently read the play The Inheritance by Matthew Lopez. I don't know if you, you've seen yeah. or read it. Um, yeah, I, and, I know it. Well, and there's a really interesting scene in there where like light spoilers, but the character Walter dies and he wants to leave his his extravagant house to one of our protagonists, Eric. And he doesn't like put in an official will. He just writes a kind of letter to his partner saying Mm -hmm. that, uh, Henry, I want the house to go to Eric and doesn't sign it. It's not notarized. And Henry and his sons kind of look at it and they're like, well, how do we know this is real? And Henry looks at like, this is Walter's handwriting. It's real. Well, it's not legal. Like nobody knows that this exists and they, you know, they decide to burn it, which within like the letter of the law, they're allowed to do. It was not a legal contract. It wasn't an official will, but there is that kind of moral quandary of, but I know this is what Walter wanted. And having just read this very recently, this is the kind of what's going on in my head during this Lorax contract scene of, yeah, sure, your lawyers can work their lawyer magic and prove that it is legal for you to expand the definition of a nook to cover the entire forest but you know that that's not what it meant and that's not what you agree to with the Lorax (laughs) yeah like if we're going into bizarre personal resonances um I'm on my I want to say 10th rewatch of Better Call Saul um so that was also like it coincided with watching this and I was like oh these are of a similar spirit that's good good stuff good stuff um I also yeah I don't there were just a few like little quips that I had with this like on the whole I liked it and it's a very strong quality production like I no one's gonna argue against that but at the same time again this like might be a personal thing but I when the Wunzler first started talking or singing don't remember what she does first I think talking mm-hmm. um I briefly was like looking elsewhere I wasn't looking at my screen and I heard him start and in the back of my mind I was like oh dear god is that James Corden because the <laughs> voice was so similar without seeing him and I was like, like, I may need to text Ryan and tell him that this is off because I'm not doing like a long James Corden thing. Not happening. Not today. And then I looked and was 
you know, pleasantly surprised, but it was very hard <laughs> to shake while watching this. This wasn't actually Fair a very well James Corden. Well, I'm glad it didn't turn out to be James Corden. Not that I personally have anything against him, but like, I, I don't know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know many do and clearly, but I'm glad that it wasn't just because now we get to review this. <laughs> all right. All right. Um, yeah yeah i where do we want to go next with well i think just kind of continuing this thread of the sort of commentary here yeah. another scene that really stands out and well there's sort of two kind of just going chronologically here after the sort of contract is completely massacred the onceler tries something very sneaky and that's setting up a conservation reserve called lorax park <laughs> And that scene I thought was so funny in it, 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 like a smart way, but oh, yeah. it's, it's like, yeah, sure. I've completely reneged on this contract and I'm not going to face repercussions for that, but you know what? I still care, wink. And I'm going to make a big show out of caring by having a big press conference about all the nature conservation my deforestation company is doing. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of love that there's like a lot of moral tension going on inside the character of the Lorax. Oh, yeah. The, the, the puppeteers, I think, like, brought, like, they did a really good job of, like, showing how conflicted this character is. Because mm-hmm. on one hand, he's like, no, you've already done too much. But he recognizes that if he doesn't make this small concession, it's just gonna, he's not gonna get any of it. That right. there's no, there's no legal position in which the Lorax can kind of claim the high ground here anymore. There's a moral position, certainly, but so yeah, like there's this sort of just tired defeat in the Lorax in that moment of fine, I guess I have to agree to Lorax Park. <laughs> and then when they have the press conference with the the yellow wigged MC. <laughs> just gonna just gonna leave that right there and how it's basically a tourist zoo where you can take selfies with the barbaloots and the swami swans (laughs) um yeah then the lorax like says okay no more i'm gonna i'm gonna sing my protest song i love the line he thinks he's bob dylan (laughs) um and then he calls the health inspector and the environmental inspectors and then that's the other scene I really want to talk about, this inspection and like... Oh yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, so do you have thoughts about it like before we... I, yeah, no, just the the Woody Guthrie parallel also did a lot for me. I, yes, this Lorax kills fascists, yeah. Yes. You, oh, well, he tries to, it's ultimately unsuccessful, which I think is really yeah. sad and almost cynical, but you know, we, we, we get to the optimism by the end. Oh yeah. Uh, but yeah, this then this, so then the inspection happens. One, I love the the one actor playing both inspectors with like the flip mustache. That's just that's just fun staging. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it like it's interesting because like that whole it's a surprisingly long scene at the yes. the factory inspection, and it starts with like oh look how non polluting my uh, factory is, and the Lorax reveals he has it on demonstration mode, and then he dials it up to eleven, and then it goes crazy. Um, so like he's not doing well on the inspection he's like you know he buys off the fish who he's putting the goop in the river he like buys them off with like oh I'll sure I'll relocate you and here's some lunch vouchers and they seem pleased with that which is like that's a choice Um, but then and then of course there's the he says fake news speaking of yellow wigs (laughs) 
yeah. And then, but what I thought was kind of really fun, because like, haha, yes, we get it, fake news, hee hee, that's a thing. Um, but then it's immediately followed by a very loud fart sound. Yep. With the, the barbalutes, you know, come, you know, kind of long for my taste, but you know, point taken. That I do like how yes, we did our obligatory Trump joke, but fart, fart, womp, 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 kind of <laughs> like, you know, it, it, I could almost tell like, yeah, we didn't want to do it either, but someone said we had to. <laughs> was like my <laughs> reading of that. So this yeah. is how we're gonna undercut it. Um, but then the factory inspection scene ends with them saying, "Oh, you failed the, the inspection. We're gonna shut it down." And this is a sort of point of contention for me where I thought uh, they could have done something different because he does the new product launch for Need 2.0 and then that's so successful that the charges are dropped from the inspection. Like, yeah, I think, like, is, is the comment there that just, you know, consumer demand overpowers like you know safety inspections like i think what might have been a more interesting thing is kind of along the same lines of setting up lorax park if like if like in the law the inspection requires these small concessions to be made that you do this to kind of improve the environment and they kind of do more of this like you know activist theater that corporations so often do to like look we we're very uh we're very good for the environment in fact and then that being what drops the charges and but actually doesn't stop the deforestation <laughs> i don't know well, i mean yeah like again watching this during the ontario lockdown where most of our covid cases are being caused by things like warehouses it's very hard not to think about amazon while watching this yeah. right like Amazon, which for whatever reason doesn't have to close any of its warehouses, but they're giving their workers shoes that or shoes, shirts that say, I'm a hero. Like if you work at Whole Foods right now, you yeah. have shirts that say, I'm a Whole Foods hero. Like and, and that's exactly what I'm thinking. Like that's I would have liked to see these more kind of like silly corporate ruses as opposed right. to just people love the new product or back in business. Like okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. 100 percent I yeah, there's just little things kind of sprinkled throughout and like especially in scenography as well and, and the prop making, not even just the puppets, but the actual props, I, I thought yeah. were really clever. Um, if we're looking at the, the character of the Lorax, which it's the Lorax, I think we can. Um, the fact that he his movements are almost so dog-like, I really appreciate it. Like if we're taking this as TYA, which for the sake of argument, I think it is, um, I, it felt really just cool and, and really whimsical to see you know, it, it's a dog. Like he's he's moving exactly like, you know, if I'm a kid with a beagle at home, like, oh my God, that's, I get this. I, I relate to this. This is neat. But like the kind of walrusy mustache I thought was really just cute and well done and true to the books and invigorating that sort of movement and liveness into the books without completely alienating the books as well. I don't know. I, I yeah. it's a good piece of sonography. No, I, I agree. Like there's something interesting that I, I recently... Uh, reread this because I thought it would be appropriate for this. So it's in this book, uh, Theater and Adaptation by Margarita Lira. Great one. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Well, so there's an interview in here with Katie Mitchell, who in 2009 did a, a Cat in the Hat adaptation. And I want to read what Katie Mitchell said in this interview. Uh, yes. So, quote The Cat in the Hat was very much an adaptation, but the focus on our work was in creating cartoon like pictures and not changing the text. The book was a classic picture book written for very young children who cannot read. 
Their experience of the book would be a visual one with parents reading as the soundtrack. We had to make the action on stage look exactly like the book so that a child could turn the pages of the book whilst watching the show and the two would be an exact visual, visual match. And huh. I, I think that's interesting. Like, I don't know, because this on one hand feels like it might have been trying something similar to that, but this is a much kind of more sort of subversive adaptation in a way, which... Yeah, yeah, because... That's interesting. I, I almost feel like they took a different approach to this where they're not actually trying to recreate at all the, the visuals of the book with the exception of the Lorax puppet. I think he's the kind Lorax, of- the I think the Wensler puppet too was kind of trying to evoke the, but most of it, yeah, to me feels like this is not a, we didn't change the text. We're just trying to put the text in a stageable format. This is very much its own creation. Yeah, like I truly, like it feels almost more like it's inspired by the Lorax, then I don't know, even when with the text and the story so close to the book, it's hard to say that it's only inspired by, but like, yeah. it's, you've got this really cool aesthetic conceit going on on stage, but I don't think if Dr. Seuss were to make his own theater show of the Lorax, which he sh shouldn't, but whatever, if he were, I don't He's think this dead. is the path he would take. <laughs> yes, well, yes, thank you, Ryan. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I think it's doing its own thing, and that's yeah. fine. I'd be curious what a Katie Mitchell Lorax looks like. But... Well, I think that quote kind of gives us a sense of where her priorities are. Like, I love Katie Mitchell, don't get me wrong, but like, where, like, she's like, if you're making a Dr. Seuss thing for children, you want to give them the, you know, it's the, the real fidelity and adaptation argument of the, the kids want to see their favorite book on stage, let's give them that. And this, I was quite pleasantly surprised, wasn't just that, because I've read the book, I reread the book last night. I, it's technically impressive to see that kind of thing, but I like, again, I think if you're hiring someone like Katie Mitchell or David Gregg, you want to like, you, you want to see what these sort of brilliant artists bring to it more so than just, you know, aesthetic visualization. Oh, for sure. And again, like the Matilda adaptation really kind of comes back into conversation as well, because that's another British piece of musical theater that had a movie adaptation, granted a better movie adaptation than the 2011, right? Right, 2012, Correct? I think, yeah. Um, but yeah, where the musical of Matilda, it's absolutely not a one-to-one -one recreation of the book or even close, and it really goes in a few unhinged directions in the middle. But like, if, you know, I was a kid who adored Matilda and when I first saw the musical, I was like, oh my God, like, absolutely. This is the same spirit. It's, it is achieving the same reaction through a different path and that's adaptation theory at its best, like ad adapted theater. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, like there's, there's something in British dramaturgy that seems to be really good at adapting children's work and what that is that hasn't translated as well to outside of the UK, I'm not sure, yeah. but that's fair. Yeah, it's, I, I would be very curious because this, like this production did tour. In fact, it, Mervish did it like, uh, yeah, in Toronto. But yeah, I think that was just touring. I'd be very curious what a Canadian or American staging of this text would look like and how that would yeah. maybe deviate and, or even just, I don't know. I don't know if there have been specifically American or Canadian adaptations of Dr. Seuss books for the stage, but we've seen the American film versions. Of the, Right, and it's something that comes to mind as well is the uh, never-ending story that the NAC did yeah. year, two years ago, 
where I think it's trying to achieve something similar, but it wasn't great. It was, again, really, it felt long and indulgent. And I think that's kind of where this shines is it's not just putting all of its energy into um, aesthetics and, and spectacle. There's actually some real kind of heart to the playwriting that David Gregg has done. Of course there is, he's David Gregg. Um, but I think somewhere along the way, companies and ad ad adapters, sure, have kind of forgotten that you're not just making something that children want to look at, but it's something that everyone in the audience is digesting as well, in addition to the picture. Yeah, and this is a question that, like, we talked about this with Ratatouille, but I think it's appropriate here too. Who is this for? Is it for the kids? Is it for the adults? Is it for kind of corporations to see a crude refracted mirror of themselves? I... Whereas Ratatouille, Tusicle certainly felt more for an audience of theater makers and very much for the people who made it. Like it, I don't want to say it was indulgent, but I think it was very self-satisfying. Um, this, I can comfortably say it feels more like it is made for children and that's okay. There's, yeah. there's space for that. Like I, I didn't feel like this was made for me, but it wasn't supposed to be. That's fine. Um, what about you? Yeah, I, I, I think I was leaning certainly towards the same way. I thought a lot of the sort of anti-corporate satire maybe probably just a little too hard hitting for the kids to kind of wrap their heads around which makes me think is this like I, I think overall the product of the show is for kids but I kind of feel like is this stuff that exists for the parents who are taking their kids like you know we always talk about with or up until pretty recently, that was always the thing that like Pixar, or I would say even now Pixar does differently is that they make it for the adults, but it's colorful and moves fast so the kids will enjoy it. Like, um, whereas I, I don't know, I feel like this to me is trying to have it both ways, but some parts to me feel is a little too juvenile for the adult audience, but a little too complex for the child audience. For sure, for sure. And like, even so, um, the Thneed itself, like the pink mm -hmm. knit thing that they're using to symbolize the need. Like, if you're making this for children of today, I mean, it's a horrifying idea, but like the Thneed of today is probably an iPad, right? Like, yeah. like I, I kind of wondered like, oh. Black box that does everything you need. <laughs> well, yeah. right. And it's, you know, you see the screaming kids at shoppers who are attached to their mm -hmm. iPads and it's like, oh, that's where that generation is going okay cool so I almost kind of wondered how childhood of today could be reflected in a story that was intended for the childhood of however many years ago yeah like 1971 uh, I think the book was written <laughs> like yeah. yeah like this the need it's interesting because this is a very analog technology like it, yeah. it, reminds, it reminds me of watching the Jetsons as a kid and thinking that the future everything will run on sprockets this is where technology <laughs> is going and like they have no right. idea like uh but yeah this this need the thing that everyone needs like as a symbol it is just this universal commodity that it could be anything it, we're not saying that oh needs themselves are bad it's just that deforestation towards commodity production is bad but yeah I I, I do I, I think yeah it's a very good point that like what that universal commodity is today that does everything is very different and certainly, you know, brings about its own environmental destruction, like in order to mine everything you need to make the smartphone or the iPad, like. Well, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And like, it's, it's kind of a more existential question as well, but then what, how do you represent childhood on stage to an audience of multiple ages? Because like what you and I think of as childhood is absolutely not what, you know, yeah. a current six-year-old is going to think of as, earlier easier times or whatever 
So like, I don't know, it's that kind of maybe feeds the idea that, oh, maybe this was meant for all ages, but then that kind of falls apart um, when you look at how it's done. So I don't know, it's it's an interesting conundrum. Yeah, I, I feel like another thing we could talk about, because obviously this is a musical, <laughs> it's a susical in effect. <laughs> no, it's not susical. Um, <laughs> uh, what did what'd you think of the music? Did you have a song that stood out to you? Um, as someone who like very much has a background in musical theater, it's one I don't really talk about anymore, but it's certainly there. Mm-hmm. Um, like I didn't leave this humming any of the songs. Yeah. Um, musically, they're fine. They're getting the job done of there being like a melody. Mm-hmm. Um, true. I honestly, I think what's impressive here are lyrics, which um, are were lyrics split between Greg uh, and. And Charlie Fink. Uh, it yeah. says Fink wrote the music. I don't know what that implies necessarily. The division of labor, if like that's lyrics and libretto, or if that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the music's fine. It's yeah, I, like it, it wasn't so irritating as to be like grating for an older audience. And I'm sure if I were a child, I would enjoy it. Like it was fine. Um, what is memorable about this is I think where the dialogue manages to hit precisely the notes of child and adult. Um, and there's a number of times where that happens, even kind of like I said before, like when those rhymes come out of nowhere and are just awful, but amazing at the same time, it's like, yeah, absolutely. I'm not gonna go away humming any of these songs, but I am gonna go away thinking, huh, conundrum does rhyme with underum. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I I feel like I probably like the music a little more than you did. I I agree that, like, I'm not necessarily humming them days later, but I'm a fan of Charlie Fink. I think he's a very good songwriter. I like Knowing the Whale. I like his solo album. Like, I I don't think this, like, is his best work, but it's very much confined to doing the the job that is required of making the Lorax a musical. And, you know, compared to the film, which is also a musical, I think these yeah. songs feel more thematically coherent than the than the ones yeah. in the movie do um yeah I, I i like the kind of variety of songs we have here we have the lawyers have like a supreme soul kind mm. of number i like that the you know super axe hacker is like a you know, jam and rock song i like how we have the yeah. the we are one protest sort of like woody guthrie bob dylan kind of like <laughs> Uh, yeah, like I, there's a lot to like in the music. I kind of wish there was an official cast recording because I wanted to re-listen to the songs after and I couldn't find them anywhere. And like, so yeah, it's sort of hard. And yeah, and that's the thing. Usually when I watch a musical, if I like the music, I immediately listen to the cast album and kind of follow up with it and listen to it for weeks after or sometimes if I really like it. Like, and this, yeah, it, I kind of don't feel like, I feel like maybe with that opportunity, it might have definitely been mm-hmm. more of an earworm, but just from the one viewing, I don't think it did that. I'm, I'm the same way. Like a, a good cast album really will help me to fall more into the world of the show and think about it for longer. Like, I think that's what they're meant to do. Right. Yeah. But like, I also like, this might even be a, a conversation for Mac. Like I'd be curious his thoughts, but like, I truly feel like a lot of the commercial musical theater of the past 20 years has really lost that sort of earworm capability. Mm-hmm. Like 
I, I, the, the first audience to see, you know, Sweeney Todd when it first debuted, like you leave humming little priest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like so much contemporary musical theater has kind of lost that ability to hook in the way that, you know, contemporary pop and stuff does. Not six. Six is the perfect musical in my opinion. Like that I, to me, you don't okay. like six. <laughs> I have mixed feelings about six. Okay. I've tried it a couple of times. I've listened to the cast album. It's like fine. All right. I, to me, every single song on that album is an earworm. I, I absolutely okay. adore it. And I like, I, I can't get any work done listening to that album. Cause I just like dance and sob at the same time. Like it's awful, but like. <laughs> <laughs> This is information I really like knowing about you, Ryan. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but so this is no six, though. Like this is no six. I agree. Like, <laughs> but I, I think yeah, there are certainly some musicals of today that I do think achieve. I think you're maybe painting with a little bit of a wide brush, even if you don't agree about which ones. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think this, yeah, reaches those levels. But to me, while this is marketed as a musical, it doesn't like. It doesn't strike me as like Lorax the musical, if that no, makes sense. No, not at all. It's, not at all. It's almost like, like you kind of said at the beginning, it was sort of a surprise to you to find out as it was starting that, oh, right, this is a musical. Like, yeah. It, it, yeah. To me, this is like, this is Lorax the play mm. with puppets. <laughs> and oh, oh, yeah, it's also a musical. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know how we haven't brought this up yet, but I mean, it's in terms of adaptation and style of adaptation, it's super similar to the SpongeBob musical as well, eh? Yeah. Are you familiar with it? I, I've listened to the soundtrack. I haven't actually seen it staged, but... Its use of puppets is really similar. And, like, it's kind of the same thing of, like, they're not at all trying to recreate the characters on stage, but merely suggest them if you're familiar yeah. with the original. Yeah, like, like the and I've seen what the costumes look like. That yeah, it isn't, yeah. like, a square sponge man. But... Yeah, exactly. Like... Mm-hmm. I feel like both are are awesome examples of how you can suggest the world without building it one to one, which cool. Like mm-hmm. I like what I like that the, both of these have managed to achieve that. That's neat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, no, I think it's very neat. Um, yeah, and no, that, again, so in the style of that panto as well, like yeah. it, uniquely British in the way that it almost expects you to yell back at certain times as well. Like, yes, yeah. and yeah. I think it's like it is reasonable that like doing cartoons on stage kind of does require that sort of panto vibe like you can do like a grounded gritty realistic spongebob or lorax or ratatouille but like it kind of would to me defeat the purpose like i I don't know like i I, I think of something like fun home which is also a cartoon in its own way or based on a cartoon but that Mm. while it's playing with comic aesthetics that feels like a more grounded but based on the material and the subject matter you kind of couldn't get away with doing that the same way you would do like a spongebob or a lorax oh for sure Mm -hmm. for sure it's it's interesting because i in my head i don't know why and i didn't google it should have bad dramaturg but like in my head this was always a little earlier than the 70s like i don't know why but in my head this was somewhere time like 40s or 50s yeah because most of dr seuss's best known things came like really immediate post-war sort of into the 50s 60s aftermath and this was kind of later like keep in mind that the environmental movement is shockingly young right of course like this is sort of a an immediate product of that first wave of like deep ecology arness kind of like hey maybe the planet is in trouble we should start thinking about that (laughs) like for sure but so kind of by that same token even though the environmentalist movement is super young it's changed a lot since then too and i think we kind of see that in this as well like 
deforestation is still Hundo P an issue and in, in terms of environmental issues, like it's one we kind of still talk about, but like our concerns with regards to the environment have shifted a lot. Now we're talking more about like our water and plastic and, you know, air quality. Um, and like greenhouse and, gases and like global warming right. was not a word on anyone's like lips and climate change. Like, you know, it, well, was right. all, it was all, oh no, these specific like habitats are being destroyed as the focus of the Lorax then. It, like they don't even really talk about how trees equal oxygen. <laughs> like there isn't even that comprehensive view of maybe we need trees for other reasons. Like, And well, like it kind of makes you wonder as well if, you know, you're programming this at the old Vic, like are there more recent and more topical stories about either climate change or environmental issues that might hit more of those nails more directly on the head without after tomorrow the musical <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I know yes yes um that's our next project um yeah. but like i i don't know i liked it but at the same time of you know the why this play now i'm not sure that the answer to oh it's dr seuss everyone seen it is quite compelling enough to get me there yeah uh, like to me, I think the answer to that seems a little more simple than that. It's the, it's Dr. Seuss. It is a way to introduce children to these concepts. Mm. And like, even if it doesn't like kind of engage with, you know, contemporary environmentalism, like as we understand it today, it's still, it, it's all about, it's not really about these are the specific actionable goals we need to put forward. It's about, if someone like you cares an awful lot, unless someone, unless someone like you care, it's about caring is the point. Like, and I think it's teaching children to care about the environment at a young age so that they will kind of grow with the activism, like as they enter oh, adulthood. For sure. Mm -hmm. for sure. At the same time, like the whole, if someone like you, blah, blah, blah. Um, unless the you that's watching is CEOs of like BP and Amazon, yeah, yeah nothing is going to change. But somehow <laughs> I doubt that they're watching this and really taking yeah. it to heart, you know? Yeah. But that's why I think it's interesting, like the who is this for question. And I kind of, I sort of glibly said, is it for capitalists to see themselves as a grotesque portrait of the Wensler? Like, <laughs> I think the Lorax story is poised towards that audience in a oh, way. And like, yeah, it's, yeah. you know, and that's, I think we yeah, hinted at this earlier, the, the kind of big stumbling block of the film version mm -hmm. is the the addition of O'Hare, which, you know, to their credit, I guess they are engaging with the fact that, oh yeah, trees give us oxygen and we need to think about that portion of this. Yeah. But O'Hare is just so cartoonishly evil. He literally sings a song called Let It Die, referring to the nascent tree seed. <laughs> like, and no, no Jeff Bezos is going to look at that and be like, oh my God, is that me? <laughs> one is the character you're supposed to look at. Like he's profit driven. He cares more about biggering his company than he does about the damage he's doing. And yeah. And like something that did strike me interestingly when I was rereading the book last night is there is a couple lines where the Wunzler talks about how he's sad to see the Barbaloots have to leave. And like he, <laughs> he, he, like, you know, these sort of versions like the movie and now this theater production that give the Wunzler a face and a backstory and, you know, a demanding family who he can never please. Like, they're trying so hard to humanize him, but the book kind of already does that. He's not like a one sort of painted with one brush. Well, I only care about money. It's I care about money more than I care about 
the consequences. Right. And that right. I think is that grotesque mirror that a lot of like, you know, big industrialists should sort of look at. Yeah, and I, I kind of wonder if this production almost makes the Wunstler a little too likable as well. Like he's adorable, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> he's, got, he's got all this energy and I, they, they've thrown in a few lines as well where again, he's not just profit driven and he's not even just family driven, but at some point as well, he's like, I've made this community and they need jobs and they need needs yeah. and the community, community, um, which is an interesting choice. Um, again, humanizing profiteering capitalists, a choice, but one they've chosen to make. I'm not mad at it. I'm just no, I, And I think that's a good choice. Like if you, if you watched the like early 70s animated like Lorax sort of cartoon made by the same people who did the Grinch one. They, and Dr. Seuss, I think, wrote the screenplay for that one too. So it's kind of, you know, true to the author. <laughs> um, they they do kind of engage with those arguments. And uh, the, you know, the one slur says, what do you want me to do? Shut down my factory? Think of the economy. And like, and the, the Lorax kind of can't immediately like, hit back well it doesn't matter about the economy because the trees are dying like it, right. it's there is sort of nuance in the yeah these are reasonable arguments like we have it's interesting here that the Wensler introduces capitalism to the valley right. and then well now that capitalism exists we can't just dismantle it can we <laughs> like, uh, yeah we gotta we gotta play within the system um for sure. And I, yeah, I just kind of looking at the um, creative team as well. I'm curious because they've given David Gregg and to an extent, Charlie Fink full, you know, credit for having adapted the story. But I, I wonder who else behind the scenes added their own layers, palimpsests, whatever, adaptation theory to, to make this happen. Like, I, I'm curious the other influences, be it an uncredited dramaturg or someone from the Dr. Seuss estate having a say, like I'm curious who hasn't been credited about how this particular adaptation with its own political agendas came to be I suppose yeah. and, and I think yeah it is worth questioning the licensing stuff like how much does Dr. Seuss Estate like you say Random House who published the book originally like right. Universal Studios who owns the film rights do they have like a kind of say in this like or they've made the movie and they're done I know you always see like the we have to Sony has to make a Spider-Man movie every three years or Marvel's gonna take back the character like and yeah I, I do wonder how all of these players kind of you know there is this sort of adaptation industry you know Simone Murray kind of <laughs> view of you know it's not just the you know romantic notion of the author and the you know the adapter's grubby hands getting all over that <laughs> there is a sort of yeah, economic infrastructure behind all of this. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And I, again, like, I was really just pleasantly surprised by how much I didn't know about this production going into it as well. Like, you messaged me being like, hey, David Gregg adapted the Lorax. Want to talk? And I'm like, yeah, of course, obviously. Because um, even when you just look at the website, like, they really keep so many surprises for you, which is so nice. Like, the Lorax puppet himself is barely in any promotion. All of the website's in black and white. Cool. Like, I there's something to be said for that very childlike surprise when you get to see all of these colors and this thing that's been made for you. That's, that's yeah. fun. And I, I appreciated it. Nice way to spend, you know, two in the afternoon here in Canada. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that's most of the points I came in. Ooh, oh, the ending. Do you want to talk about the ending just, just a little bit? <laughs> because uh, there's some stuff about the ending that I think is interesting. Well, first of all, <laughs> Yeah, go for it. 
like in this getting back to the music a bit there's no big finale number yeah yeah which we've kind of already talked about how is this a musical not sure but like Mm -hmm. yeah well i think it thinks it's a musical even though like you know it doesn't have that like big you know musical feel to it like it seems to think like so like i'm surprised that like i'm surprised there isn't a song called unless that is the big final like like it it ends on like a very quiet note of the Mm -hmm. of the onceler and the child's you know, planting this little fledgling sort of truffle tree. Um, and, and I thought that was, the, for just tonally, that was sort of interesting to end on this quiet note. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but the sort of other big things about the ending, it's, and again, this is a deviation from the book and kind of a well, big deviation from the movie where the whole third act is quick, we got to plant this tree right now or O'Hare's assassins will murder us or something crazy like nonsense. <laughs> um, yeah. But, I've not seen the movie. Um, oh, you've you not haven't. Especially well, but <laughs> I, I'm compelled to at this point. Yeah, like, it is a fascinating cultural artifact. And, and I think it's fun in a way. It's not good, but like it's it's fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like just just the kind of liberties they take with it are like bold strokes that like don't always know what they're doing or where they're going with it. But it is certainly interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. So with the ending here, something that I yeah I think is interesting is it just ends. The, the Onceler story ends with like a, and that's how the Lorax left. Okay, kids scram. <laughs> and then and then the kid is like, well, that's not right. That can't be the end. And one of the narrators said, who knew the Lorax was such a depressing story? And like, <laughs> but, but like, it kind of is like the book ends on this little glimmer of hope. Here's the last seed, go plant it. But we don't see the tree grow. We don't know it's about the uncertain future and that we have sort of reached this precipice where there might be no turning back, but if you care enough, maybe we can, maybe we have a chance. Um, Right. This decides to end with not the Wensler giving the child a seed and being like, you are, you are our hope for the future. Take this and run. It's mm-hmm. the, the child like demands there's got to be something we could do and I was like well, I guess I have this seed here. Take it. Get out of here. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like the Wensler the the Wunstler's hope isn't reinvigorated by the child caring. It's yeah. reinvigorated by seeing the sprout at the end. Um, so yeah, we, we kind of get this whole little bit of the, the child planting the seed. The Wunstler comes out of hiding and like, there it is. You did it. Good child. <laughs> and there's this kind of like very on the nose, like anyone can cook moment essentially where we don't need the Lorax to come back. The real Lorax was inside us all along, but <laughs> that anyone who advocates for trees and does the does the hard work and gets their hands in yeah. the soil is the real Lorax. The, the I, real Lorax is the friends we made along the way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty much. And like, it's a choice. I don't necessarily hate it, but like, I, I'm just curious what you think about it. Well, it, it's kind of set off this, um dilemma in my brain of why is this called the Lorax and not the Wansler mm-hmm. um and it's also like my brain kind of immediately goes to like literary slash play analysis and I'm like oh it's a frame narrative so it's kind of, we've essentially got the great Gatsby in terms of its storytelling mm-hmm. where our agent of action is actually Caraway and the Lorax is Gatsby in this essay I will but like mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah it's an interesting note to end on I mean like the playwright in me is like, yeah, that's life. Like things don't always get as nicely tied up as we would want in a picture book. But 
I don't know. It's, I wasn't mad at it. It, it felt yeah. like a natural ending. And two hours later, like it certainly felt like a natural ending, but. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think to me, I read this ending as trying to answer the question you just raised of why is this called the Lorax? Right. Uh, as opposed to, because if it was just called the one slur, then it becomes, this is, and it very much is this most of the way. It's the story of the, the destructive force right. uh, learning to reckon with its own, like, yeah, devastation. Um, but right, but then if you have this like Lorax Jesus figure as well, like it kind yeah. of raises all these really big questions about sacrifice yeah. and and you know martyrism that for children, great, right? like it's it's awesome. Yeah, and like I I think they try to answer the question of why is it called the Lorax of so being like you are the Lorax, we are all the Lorax, you are a secretariat. Um, and I, I think, you know, the poster should have just been a mirror. Um, but I, I think, I, 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 yeah, I have mixed feelings about the ending because it, to me, it feels a little too hopeful after having hung the lampshade on the, wow, who knew the story was depressing. Yeah. But environmentally speaking, things are a lot worse now than they were in 1971. In 1971, that's actually a fine ending, because at that point, there was still, like, kind of time to fix things. Um, yeah. Now, when we're doing a Zoom production of this due to a pandemic, because it is a special pandemic issue of this, like... Yeah. Like, I kind of want to see the child be like, no, it's too late. How dare you? Yeah, <laughs> to you the Wunstler. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, the, the avatar for hopeful future today, kind of being sort of Greta, like, in that case, like, is... Mm you know, isn't the same as I will go, I'll plant the seed and we'll have a whole forest. It's a, no, you have to reckon for what you've done, adult generation. Like, right. it's stop trusting us children to save it. Like, you're the ones who put it this way. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know. I, it's, <laughs> the, the ending is positive, but I kind of think there's something bittersweet in that positivity, if that makes sense, because it feels hollow in a way to us right like if we look at this through the eyes of like an eight-year-old I it might be kind of the right amount of hope to light a fire under an eight-year-old's butt whereas for the adults we kind of know like oh this you know yeah. nudge nudge it's not great but I don't know if this is for kids and it's trying to get them in, in words but like in more activist e so sorry <laughs> then maybe it's doing that I'm not eight I don't know but <laughs> I don't know. It's it's a good point. It's a good point. Yeah. Anyway, that's everything I had. Do you have any closing thoughts or other things we haven't addressed yet? I think I hit all my talking points. Um, I think I said Walrusy Mustache at one point. And that yep, was really there you go. Cool. You did. Well done. Yeah, if okay. that was something you had on your list, gotta say Walrusy Mustache. Check. Mission accomplished. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I, th- like, it's it's the Lorax. Like, like we're not going to get into super intense conversations on dramaturgical fidelity because almost any argument on this play can just be answered with it's the Lorax. It is the Lorax. And I think yeah, we, <laughs> there is a certain amount of respect for that source material that we can give in our analysis. Uh, but yeah, like I think, yes, well, it is the Lorax and there's only so much we can do dramaturgically. Dramaturgically speaking, I think this production did a very great job of giving us a theater Lorax in the 21st century that is attempting to grapple with much of what, like, yeah, where the world has been since the 70s. Well, Ali, thank you for joining me for another lovely duet review. This is always a pleasure and so much fun to just talk about 
whatever this was. Uh, do you, Thank you for having me. I yeah, appreciate it always. No problem. Do you want to plug your socials before we bid adieu? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I have a website. Um, it is um, my first name, my last name, .ca. Um, and I have Instagram as well. It is A-L-Y underscore Murph because Ashling underscore Murph has been taken for several years. <laughs> and how about you, Ryan? Where can we find you? Well, you can't find me personally, but probably can, but I'd rather you didn't. So just send all that love to Cup of Hemlock, COH Theater on all platforms. Or there's a link in the description to sign up for a sonnet. I've described this in previous things. I'm not going to go through all the hoops again, but just sign up for a sonnet or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Take care, everyone. This has been a lot of fun. And remember, unless someone like you cares an awful lot, nothing will ever change. It won't. I'm ruined the rhyme. <laughs> Good night, everyone. Take care.